Hello, fellow grievers. You have found the leftover pieces, Suicide Loss Conversations, and I am Melissa, your podcast host. Join me for real conversations and candid talk on hard topics surrounding the loss of a loved one to suicide. I talk with other loss survivors, mental health experts, advocates, and sometimes I offer my own thoughts. Every week we explore the questions that haunt us, seek the courage to uncover the healing tools within us, and hopefully offer the comfort of a community that we all need so very much. It's true our hearts and lives have been shattered, but come along with me and together let's choose to find meaning and even happiness amid the leftover pieces before us. Welcome. Hello, fellow grievers. Today, you have reached Season 2, Episode 18 of the Leftover Pieces, Suicide Loss Conversations. I'm Melissa, your host. And today, I share my conversation with Laura Dev. In March of 2017, Laura lost a very dear person in her life to suicide. Ellis was Laura's ex-boyfriend. They had been together for eight years. When Ellis died by suicide, they had only been apart for six months. Laura is from England, but prior to Ellis's death, she had spent some time in Uganda, and after his death, she found herself going back there. She lives in the village of Entebbe, which sits on the shores of beautiful Lake Victoria. Laura is happily married and is living a wonderful life. But yet she shares with us the journey that has been the last four years and where she is in it now. She talks about unpacking this grief and how she actually had it in a box, a metaphorical box, but it was in a box for several years. She talks about comparing grief and giving herself permission as someone who loved and cared for Ellis very much and had an extremely important part of his life, and yet by many was perceived as someone who somehow shouldn't be carrying this grief as heavily. She talks about her therapy processes and the things that she's been through to work on her grief. She talks about looking for her safe space and how she finally feels like she may have found this this year. But one of the biggest things she talks about is her art and how therapeutic it's become and how actually therapeutic art is probably where she's headed with her future. I think from this conversation, you will gain insight and hear a very unique perspective on suicide loss. You'll hear Laura talk about community and in the end, highlighting the importance of a creative outlet and self-expression in our healing journey. It's my honor to share this conversation. Hi, Laura. Welcome. It's my privilege to have you here today. I'm really glad that you wanted to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Now I'll say good afternoon because at the time of the recording, it's good morning for me. And it's definitely good afternoon because you're coming <laughs> from Uganda, correct? Yes, that's right. And is it the, is it, am I saying this correctly in Tebe? Yes. 
Yeah. I guess. Right next to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really, if I looked on a map and you're located like right next to Lake Victoria. I can see it right now through my oh, window. <laughs> it has to be so beautiful. So it is stunning. Awesome. I'm going to start the same way I always start, which is asking you to share your last story with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I lost my ex-partner, Ellis, and it's hard to know where to begin. But he died March 2017, and we'd been broken up for a while. We were still in contact, but not massively closely in contact because we'd separated. We were going our different ways, and, and I thought everything was going well for him as well. Whilst we were together, he was suicidal for, he'd been suicidal for quite a number of years. So when I'd heard the news, I happened actually to be in France when I heard the news of him passing. And yeah, it was crazy. I I was on a holiday and I had to come back, had to go back to the UK because as soon as I heard the news, obviously immediately I wanted to go back and see his family and everything. So yeah, it was as soon as I heard that he'd gone missing, it it was the next thing in my mind. It wasn't it wasn't like a complete I wasn't expecting it, but it wasn't a complete surprise. He'd been depressed for a number of years. He'd been trying many different things. When we were together in our relationship, he'd talked to me quite openly about suicide and the different ways that he wanted to do it, which did put a huge amount of of pressure on us and on the relationship. And I think what makes my lost story kind of complicated in that sense is the fact that we had broken up. Of course, people break up all the time, relationships end, and that was a, a normal thing to happen. But it complicated my grief quite substantially, I would say, because I felt, and this is something that we discussed, that I almost didn't have the right to grieve because I it was super complicated. I feel okay, I let I've let him go and I wasn't a part of his life anymore. So even though I knew that I was sad and that I felt this certain way. I almost felt, yeah, I felt like his family, his close friends, I felt if they're feeling that if I'm feeling like this, how are they feeling? I was always comparing my grief from his loss. And yeah, so it was really quite a tough time. But I think at the start, I was surrounded by friends. So it was quite, I went through quite the logical grief steps that you would expect to go through, especially losing somebody to suicide. So we, like myself and one of my friends, we went to the place where he died from. We wrote messages to him. We did all these things that were quite therapeutic for us. And and I was really surrounded with, with friends and his family were really great as well. They were like the first people to contact me and welcome me over to theirs and be like just very warm, which I know cannot always be the case. So I was really grateful for that. But yeah, that's that was it in the short term. And then I made a super big life-changing decision to move 
um, back to Uganda. I'd been working there for a number of years and I'd recently met someone who I was interested in seeing if I could pursue a relationship with. So that person's now my husband. And I thought, okay, it felt like a now or never situation, but it was definitely more complicated going there and losing that support network. And yeah, I felt like I did feel, I felt really alone at times. Yeah. So I think that's, I've been to therapy and I'm a huge advocate for therapy because it's really helped me to compartmentalize things and um, process it. I initially went to quite an experimental therapist. She was great, like recommended lots of crazy things that if you hear it, you're like, how would that work? Why would that make you feel better? But it did. It really worked for me. And for whatever reason, it worked. So she, I kept having cycles of thoughts, the same thing over and over again. I'd say I probably had about five to seven repeated thoughts and once I got to the end of one, I'd start right at the beginning of the other. And that was it. And it was like that for months. In the morning, I'd be waking up in the early hours and my brain was just going round and round. And yeah, I just got caught in a really big cycle and I spoke to her about it. And she told me to, to get a wheel or something circular and to break it. And so she said, do it when you're next feeling frustrated from your cycle of thoughts. So the next, maybe not the next morning, but a few mornings later, I was really in a bit of a fit and I, I was yeah, having a bit of a panic attack, really. And I remembered her advice. I grabbed the first circular thing that I could see that was a bin lid and I got a saw and I sawed through the bin lid and it was quite tough, but I <laughs> reached the bottom and then I had these two halves of the bin lid and I just felt relieved. That was, and then the, the cycle of thoughts stopped, which I don't know why, but it, it worked for me. So she, I saw her a couple of times and she had several bits of advice like this. She also advised me to take self holidays. So I would take myself, not like on a holiday, literally, but self vacation, I think she called it where I would just make an hour for myself every day. And I went to go and sit near the train tracks. I was living in a place called Ginger at the time. And I'd go and sit near the, the train tracks there. And there was a really beautiful view of the river. And I would just sit there with nothing. I would walk there and just take the time to sit and watch and absolutely do nothing. And that was quite therapeutic for me. So that was the first part of my journey with her. And then I, and then the second part of my journey was really more recent where I saw an arts therapist because I started getting this interest in art therapy and thought maybe I should go see an art therapist myself. So he was based in the UK. We did it over video call and he was really helpful particularly in, I was having a lot of issues with insomnia. I would sit up at night and really feel like Ellis's presence in the room almost. And I couldn't shake this feeling of that. And that, um, that caused me a lot of insomnia. And I, I, I became quite incapable of sleeping in a bed by myself with the lights off. And he really helped me through that process and find acceptance with what I was feeling. So yeah, I would say 
it's obviously a, a work in progress. Once you've had a loss like this, it really is a completely different type of pain. So it's not that I want to ever reach an end goal of being perfect and being myself again, but understanding it as, as a journey as well with different bumps along the way. I think that's a really good way to put it, right? It is a journey. I always you hear all the cliches, but it is about the journey, which life is in general. It's not about the destination and grief is definitely that way. A lot of people start the grieving process. And I, this will touch on something you touched on a minute ago, but subconsciously we think there's an end to our grief. That it's a like a process to work through, mm. which would indicate there's an end mm. and there's not an end. We're going to grow and change and evolve. But ideally the loss of somebody in our life there's not really an end to how we feel about that. So it's interesting. First of all, thank you so much for sharing that because every time I hear somebody's story, I'm just so honored to be trusted with the story and your experience. And I'm just so sorry for your loss. I was struck by the duality which I talk about in suicide loss a lot, that there's often dualities that we live in. And for you, the one that just immediately is there is the fact that you and Ellis weren't together anymore. And you had shared with me that it was quite a long relationship. You'd been together for eight years and not Mm -hmm. that matters, but it does. It wasn't someone you had been dating for three months. You knew each other, you were very connected, and but yet you weren't dating and you had begun to move on as you thought he was too. And so you were starting to build another phase of your life with possibly another person that you were interested in. And after losing Ellis and going, you know, back to Uganda to pursue, that's the duality that hit me is you were stuck in this place, and maybe stuck is the wrong word, but you found yourself in a place where you're straddling what the grief and the loss for someone that you cared about, loved deeply, but that really was your past. But now it's in the forefront because of the physical loss and trying to then move forward in a new life and build a new love with somebody that had to be an extremely, I don't even want to say difficult. It might not have been difficult. It might've been, but a very unique place to grieve. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like you feel like there's only so much grieving that you can do around a potential like partner as well. He was amazing and understanding and gave me a lot of space for it. But yeah, it I was going to say there has to be a big but coming because yeah, but yeah, it was incredibly difficult because I didn't really have anyone to turn to. I had my friends on the other end of a phone call, but (laughs) it's not not the the same. same. Mm -hmm. And the friends that I had in Uganda, because I'd been working there for a number of years. So it wasn't like I was completely starting afresh. I'd already had a bit of a network there, but I just had this realization that Actually, I didn't really have many friends in Uganda. I'd been working there for a number of years. I had a lot of people that I went to parties with, and I had a lot of people who I would socialize with and have fun with. But other than fun friends, I had nobody that I could cry to. I had nobody I could 
run to if I needed something. Nobody I could turn up at their door in my pajamas. So that was difficult because then it exerts a lot more pressure on your relationship because you don't have the outlet elsewhere. And there was quite a limit to his understanding because I can't remember if I said this in our conversation previously or with somebody else, but if you were in a new relationship, you wouldn't be talking about your ex-partner all the time. It's not a normal thing to do. But of course, because of the circumstances, it was in the forefront of my mind a lot more. And what was something I was battling with constantly on a daily basis. And so I talked about it a lot more. I definitely didn't shy away from talking, but it was difficult and also then brought a lot of feelings up for my husband now like he very much struggled with the loss too as a knock-on effect of trying to support me and not knowing necessarily the best way to do it so there was a lot of complicated feelings there yeah well and um, didn't you say there was also the additional complication because from a cultural standpoint your husband's culture views suicide a little bit differently than possibly mm-hmm. your culture of upbringing did and that brings an additional layer to it, correct? Yeah, definitely. So it's very much a taboo. And I I know of suicides that have happened in Uganda, but you don't see about it on the news. You don't read about it anywhere. It's just kind of word of mouth. Those things are not spoken about. So whilst I'm glad that I'm with somebody who's very understanding, he was never, he would never shut me up or not want me to say anything it's hard for him to really know what to say about it because yeah, culturally it's, it's, I don't know, maybe I I know some people can even go as, as extreme as saying it's like a sin or something like that. So it can even be seen in that context. So it's very uncomfortable for people to know what to say. And similarly, when I was making friends here and then did start to open up about my loss I was met with just complete and utter silence. And I'm sure that a lot of people, not just that's not just going to be an experience for me, that'll be an experience for many people. People don't know how to support those who have gone through that. And now that I have, I would be better at it, but I don't know if I would have known how to support someone in my position previously. And I think that's really important, like knowing the right thing to to do when someone's either themselves feeling suicidal or has lost someone to suicide or has someone close to them who is contemplating suicide. Knowing how to support those people is really important. And I think something that should be discussed more. And I had a friend, I don't think she'll mind me sharing. She was recently engaging with somebody And she was also quite close to Ellis as well and did struggle a lot with the loss because I think that she felt she was a bit in the middle between myself and Ellis. And so she really struggled with his loss. And somebody came to her recently saying they had a suicidal friend, a close friend, and she spoke to them. And afterwards, she really panicked about what she said. And I was like, you've experienced it. You would surely know the right things to say. And saying something is better than 
not saying anything at all. Showing that you're there for that person and opening up the dialogue and opening up the conversation is actually the first step. And you can worry so much about the small things you've said and whether it was right or whether it was wrong, but actually supporting someone and someone feeling heard, I think is probably the most important thing. I would agree. I would agree that saying something versus not saying anything is really important. And to hear you say how important conversations and (laughs) talking about things are, obviously, I agree, or I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And I think that's the only way if you just talk about suicide loss and grief and helping to destigmatize those things. And I don't even want to say normalize them because we don't want to, we don't want to normalize the idea of suicide, but what we do want to normalize is the idea that grief is normal, that loss is normal. And in a lot of cultures, even dealing with loss is difficult. It's not very, it's, a little bit more hushed. People assume you should do that in private or that you shouldn't be talking about it. And especially when you're dealing with the complexity of what suicide is, and there's so many views and stigmas and things that need to be broken down. And the only way people are going to learn to know how to respond better, whether it's to someone who's suicidal or someone who's lost someone to suicide is if we teach each other, those of us that have been there. I've had the opportunity more than once on a personal level, not even talking about through the podcast or through some of the other things that I do, but on a personal level to talk somebody through a situation. I've had two recently. I had somebody reach out who was inquiring about resources for someone who was suicidal. And that was how they put it. Do you know of any resources for the, and, I, and even being where I'm at with all the things that I'm doing and implementing as a human being, I still paused and did that whole, do I ask them if this is them? Do I ask them if, because I had that kind of like question in my head just because mm-hmm. I knew who it was. But then a part of you, because then you start doing all the, is it too nosy of me? Is it going to offend them? Is it all those things? Mm -hmm. And I very quickly came to the place of saying, gosh, dang it, Melissa, (laughs) are you going to just talk the talk? Are you going to walk the walk? Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact that you're more likely to prevent somebody's suicide by asking them if they're suicidal. I didn't know enough to do that at the time that I lost my son. I know enough now. And so I did grab all of that courage and bravery and ask the person if they were suicidal and they were, and they were grateful and they talked and I, it's not someone that I am normally in a daily in touch with basis, but I've stayed in touch almost daily just as a touch point to stay consistent as somebody who's available if they not to be that bothering person, but to make sure Mm -hmm. that they're aware that it doesn't have to be a one-time offer that they can reach out. And I want to see them through the crisis piece and make sure that they're in a good place again before I just let go. And it was a really important thing. And I think it's important to share because it was the first time in five years since the loss of my son to suicide 
it's not the first time I've been asked for resources or things like that, but usually it's somebody asking for somebody else or something like that. Or, and so this was my first personal experience with it. And to have the person be willing to say, yes, it is. And I think feel relieved, Mm. which is part of what we share is that somebody that's suicidal needs to know that being suicidal itself isn't something to be ashamed of. Mm. And if they can just talk about it and they can have permission to do that, that will make all the difference. And then you go to the piece of strangely enough in the same week. And I would hope that this doesn't happen in all of our lives regularly because it's a lot, but strangely in the same week, last week, I had my best girlfriend reach out and say someone in her daughter's family. So she's been dating someone for a long time into their life. And she said, I'm not even sure why I'm telling, meaning not that as my best girlfriend, she probably wouldn't share that with me the next time we talked, but she shared it with me right away as she found out. And she said, then I said, of course, you can share my website. You can share resource. Not that I would be available to to help that person directly with their loss because they were losing their parent and it's the reverse of my loss, but Mm -hmm. I have resources for all sorts of losses, even though that's not in my wheelhouse. And, and she said, oh, I, she goes, I don't even know why I was re- telling you other than I felt because you're in this space, you might have something to offer. Mm-hmm. And even though she's my best girlfriend and the loss of Alex affected her deeply because we did raise our children together and things like that, she still felt the need to reach out and say, what do I do? How do I speak to my daughter? How do I offer resources to his family? And as much as the loss pains me every time we lose somebody to suicide. It felt a little bit like a win that there was people saying, how do I help someone that's lost people, you know, lost someone to suicide versus Mm -hmm. everybody just going, what do we do? What do we say? And being uncomfortable and not doing or saying anything. Right. And do you have, because I've, I, Obviously, I think about this as well being a teacher. I think about it from like a child's perspective. And I know that Ellis's passing, there was children who were affected as well by losing their uncle. And I wonder, because I've heard of like books that explain it to children. And I, I also think as well from a teacher's perspective, it must be very difficult with children because in some ways you're like, one half of you is we should talk about it we should be open and the other half of you is I don't want to plant any weird ideas or anything like that so it's really hard not that I think about it as a weird idea but I I think you understand what I mean I don't know if you knew of any resources for children like explaining it to children on my yes and actually one of my very early episodes was with a woman named Lindsay Doolittle And she's an art teacher in North Kansas City, Missouri, in the United States. And she lost her husband to suicide and they had no children. However, she was an aunt and uncle and and, and that was a very important role in their world. And her, she wrote a book called Goodnight, Mr. Vincent Van Gogh. And it's for children and it, it, it actually, and now it's currently making, I don't know what to call it besides a circuit. I actually, am going to reach out to Lindsay and see if she wants to chat again 
but the book has now been made into a short film and is winning a lot of awards through all of these alternative film festivals for things like this. And the illustrations in the book were all done by grievers in her suicide loss support group that kind of carried her through her loss. And so each page, the artwork was, she gave them the copy and the copy was either written or partially written by her niece. So her niece was the inspiration for the book and is the uh, illustration on the front. And her niece has been integrally involved in, because now it's four years later, whatever, integrally involved in the short film that's been made from it. I think she might be the narrator. It's really touching. But that book is, I, I can't speak highly enough of that from the standpoint of, of the entire way Lindsay went about writing it for young children and how it was put together and the simple and honest way it was done. So that resource is on my resources page, um, as well as a connection to Lindsay's online community, which is called above the rug Mm. because she tries to keep everything with grieving above the rug. Instead of we hear about things being swept under the rug. And as a suicide loss widow of a police officer that was treated, she was treated very poorly by the police department and things. She's yeah, I listened to that one. Mm. Yeah, she's a very out. So that's that was probably the concentration of the conversation that her and I had was a lot around being the widow of a police officer and that not Mm. being handled well. But what I'd like to have her back on sometime this season or next season to talk about is more specifically what's happened with Goodnight Mr. Vince Avengo and the takeaways that she's had from that. And I think you would gain a lot by at least looking at that resource, especially as a as an art teacher yourself. Mm, definitely. No, I think that's very useful. But there are not um, very many resources out there. That's the thing. And and generally there's not I think there was one after the loss of Ellis there was one booklet that I found that was specifically for suicide loss survivors and maybe it was like a seven page booklet something like that and I felt like I hung on every word because I just hadn't heard of any obviously you have your normal things for regular grief but as we know throwing sorry suicide is like throwing another spanner in the works like it's a completely different set of feelings as well new feelings and like I I found this booklet that I did find I think I just found it through the NHS um, National Health Service in the UK and it was really helpful But I remember being like, is is this it? Is this all I can find? Is this the only support I'm going to get? And I think, like we mentioned before, I said that I, I was relieved when I found your podcast because I was like, okay, finally, like something I can really relate to now. And I've been looking for suicide loss podcasts for a while. I was starting to, I started to listen to podcasts a couple of years ago and suddenly yours came up one day and I was really relieved about that as well but yeah there's not really enough resources out there generally so it can even be difficult to point people in the right direction so it's yeah it's really handy that you have this list of resources and that we can all use to share with other people as well that are going through similar 
we don't just have our loss. We, within our loss, we know that there are other losses. Like I know that my son had friends, so that's friend loss. And I know that, so even within our own loss there, like you said, Ellis had children in his life that need something. So even if we don't find something for ourselves, I just want to be able, and I'm going to grow that resources list as long as I'm able to, as long as people are feeding me resources to put on there, because Mm -hmm. it would be really easy to just gear everything there towards what I know, but I don't, my, my heart is for everybody that's lost somebody to suicide. So if I can help guide and they can help guide and we can all become a community that helps all of us find a place Mm -hmm. to heal and move forward, then that's my hope. I would love to hear you speak a little bit about how unique the guilt is. And you said that Ellis's family was really welcoming, but I know that from the time of your initial grief to like now, when you are unpacking it, as you said, a little bit more and being willing to sit with it a little bit more, that there's been a period of years that you did tuck it away. And I think it's important to address that because so many grievers feel several things. They feel like once they've put it away, that they've dealt with it, it's over, they have to move on and they don't give themselves the permission. You and I were talking about it before we started recording about it, like the analogy of putting it in a box and tucking it away. And a lot of people, once they tuck that away, feel like they can't open it again. Like it's their I've resolved that I grieved, or even they don't feel the permission to pull it out and grieve again, because, well, somebody's going to think I'm not okay or crazy or feeling whatever word you want to. If I pull that out and decide to look at it again, and maybe work through some of what I didn't initially, because you and I also address the fact that when you are the, when the perception is there that your grief isn't as important initially it is. But the perception happens with even siblings. Siblings are often called the lost grievers because they're taking care of everybody else. They just fall in there and they know their parents are carrying this huge burden of losing a child. And so they become that family liaison. And by doing that, their grief often gets dismissed and forgotten. People come up to them and say, how's your mom doing? Or how's your grandmother? This must be so hard for your family. And they're talking around them. They're not ever saying, how are you? And Mm. I think that has to be a lot of times the same thing that you, somebody like you would experience. You can call yourself a friend because yes, you were an ex, but you had a long-term relationship with Alice. So you were in that group of feeling like, well, I don't have the permission to say, this is really hard on me. Thanks for asking. And so therefore you end up going through that initial grieving process, tucking it away. And then I find it very brave that you were willing to take it out and re-examine it and realize that you hadn't worked through everything and to find how transformational it has become to you has been such a process. Cause we'll talk about that in a minute, as far as where you're headed with some of your work and your life and Mm -hmm. how that has been directly impacted by loss. Yeah. It's interesting. One thing that cropped into my mind when you were speaking there is is reactions of other people. And going through something like this gives you a really weird insight into humans and how we are and the things that we say that we think are comforting. But also and and then things that have been really comforting. 
And then also the fear of other people's reactions to me has been something that has made me pack the box away as to metaphorically speak. So I am open and I've always remained open. I've never really given myself a time limit of grief. I know that's been expected of me. People have said to me, oh, so it's still affecting you or, oh, I'm surprised that I'm still upset or um, grieving. But I think in terms of my fear of particularly Ellis's family and their reactions has been almost like I, I feel like I can't say something because it's not my place. It's not my place to to say this about Ellis because they're grieving more. They're in more pain than me. Not that your pain is comparable and pain is completely individual and different for every single person. And that I know, but it's still this kind of niggling feeling that I can't shake. Like for the first, when Ellis first passed, I guess I made like a photo album on Facebook and many people contributed into that photo album. And I did that kind of as a memorial thing. I was quite active in planning some things for like donations for the funeral, things like that. And so in that initial phase, I was quite active with my grief and and I was talking to his family, particularly a couple of, of the members of his family quite a lot and then it fades and you really feel like okay now and especially this is probably exacerbated by the fact that I uplifted and moved to Uganda I now I'm in it on my own I I don't really have the right to still be complaining and moaning like my grief should be over now for everyone else so then you go through this suffering in silence and I feel I want to like maybe post on his Facebook wall on his birthday and and say something but I almost feel like I'm it's a ridiculous feeling because I know logically that it won't happen, but I feel like I'll get this backlash of hate. Oh, I I feel like I can't say that because someone's going to really despise me for opening up and for saying my mind. So I should just keep quiet and sit with my grief and share with those who are closest to me, but maybe not be so public about it, which, yeah. And then I, I think from, actually listening to your podcast it helped me quite a lot in realizing no actually my grief is valid and I do I I deserve to own my feelings and to own what I'm experiencing and yeah kind of helped me come to terms with it a little bit more I think it's it's speaking to the idea that I talk about which is foreign to a lot of us. A lot of times when we process or go through things like this, we live in an either or world. And it's about living in an and world where you can say, I am in a lot of pain and have these things that I'm going through. And I'm a very happy person who has a husband and I'm moving forward in my life. And so the idea that those things can coexist can be foreign to people. And it shouldn't be foreign because we are allowed to be in pain and working through things and still grieving for the loss of someone that we loved and we're happy and we're moving on with our life and we have those things. I'm glad that somehow has resonated because it's not, that's part of my goal is to help normalize things and for us to realize it's been self-teaching. It's, it's on purpose. I started my podcast saying this is as much for me 
as it is for everybody that I hope to reach, everybody that needs to be reached the way I was searching for a place to be when I lost Alex. And so it touches my heart that has resonated somehow. And I hope that it continues to resonate with people because we have to give ourselves permission. I'm going to steal a phrase from the dear Shelby for Scythia, who's a grief guide. We have to give ourselves permission to grieve and be happy and normal and all the things mm-hmm. that I hate that word normal. Sorry about that. But give ourselves permission to be happy and sad and to be grieving and moving forward and to quit thinking that we have to choose one or the other and fit mm-hmm. inside of the box. Definitely. Because I, th- I think, yeah, that's definitely right about what you said. You feel like I'm either depressed or I'm not depressed. There's, is there any in between? Can you be both? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Can you live in the gray a little bit sometimes? And I think that it's okay to say that we can, everything in the world isn't black and white. mm -hmm. And as a, as an art teacher, you get that we get a paint in all different colors and all different styles. And since you've gone through your, the last four years and have transitioned and evolved some as a griever, you are also evolving as an art teacher. And I'd love for you to speak a little bit about the fact that going into, you touched on the fact that you went into art therapy yourself, as far as a a modality that you received some help from, but now speak a little bit about that, why it helped you and then where that's taking you on your journey. It just started naturally occurring really I've always been interested in the combination of art and people like how art engages with people in terms of like exhibitions community arts which then yeah naturally led me to to teaching art and I would say I only really started making my own art for me in maybe the last two years. All of my art previously had been for a reason, for this project, for this, maybe you have some particular, yeah, commission, project, exhibition, something I'd been working on. And a child turned around to me once and said, because I was always helping them with their art and showing them how to do things and giving demos, but she's like, teacher, what does your art look like? And I was like, huh, good question, because I haven't taken like much time to really figure out what my art is like anymore. I went to an art college at university, but similarly, that art's still there for a reason. It's there for, for you to get grades and like it's there for your university projects. And then from that moment when she said that to me, I I have thought I need to prioritize making my own art in my life and not always coming up with ideas for classes and things like that, but making my art for me. And so one of the one piece that I made recently that was uh, a part of that, which was inspired from the art therapy A lot of what the art therapist would do, I don't know, really, I can't maybe explain the techniques exactly, but he would really just try to work on grounding me. And I was having a lot of like panic attacks, a lot of anxiety. 
and really shoes (laughs) yeah and uh, so all of that combined together complete mess um but no he really just was there to let me breathe and to remind me to ground me and to remind me of what was around me how I could utilize my surroundings to to bring inner peace to myself and there's this grounding technique of what like five things you can see four things you can hear three things you can I'm sure you've heard of that like thinking of your senses and so a lot of what we did was really was that but it really got me to hone in on the things that were close to me and around me and things that I appreciated but maybe took for granted didn't stop to appreciate And so one of them was the view that I was telling you about where I can see Lake Victoria out of my window. It's a pretty nice view. And today when I was coming back from work, um, feeling a bit nervous about talking, I was using my grounding technique and I just, I was on a boda, which is the word for motorbike taxi here. So I was on, I came home on a motorbike taxi and I just looked ahead And I looked at the view and I took a minute to be like, this is awesome. This is great. Like my life's great. And so one of the pieces of art that initially came out of those therapy sessions was my cat. I absolutely adored my cat. She was definitely, she's passed on now, but she was definitely a big kind of support to me as well through the grief. And the picture was of her with, huge eyes and inside her eyes was the the view that I can see from my window of Lake Victoria and so that was one of the pieces of art that I've done recently I felt this is for me this is my art I'm not doing it for any other reason than just for myself so that was definitely one like a positive thing to come out of the art therapy and then a lot more that came out with it we used to speak a lot in metaphors I would talk about how I felt in terms of even I would look at things like I would see the cows passing in front of my balcony and I would talk about how I was feeling at the time and how it was related to the cows slowly moving and things like that so I'd speak a lot in we would speak a lot in images and then I would have my sketchbook next to me and just be doodling words. He introduced me to the concept of morning pages as well, which, which I'm trying to get more into now. And I would have my sketchbook there and I just doodle. So some of that is on my Instagram page that came out of the art therapy. And yeah, so I would say like my top two pieces of advice for anybody who's artistic and wants to use that as their healing would firstly be to prioritize it so I can't say I always prioritize it because I don't sometimes I'm like you know what my art can wait it's not the most important thing right now I've got to do this and I've got this thing to write up and I've got these reports to do and I've got sometimes those things in my mind trumpet but now I'm trying to reverse it and be like no my art is the most important thing right now. And it doesn't matter about these other things that I I deem to be more important because my healing and taking time for me is actually a very important thing as well. It's as important as writing those reports. So yeah, my first piece of advice would be to prioritize it. 
So I do, I do that by trying to make a weekly evening to make art. And my second piece of advice, one that I just have been thinking about recently is to do free art. So to just sit down, to make the time, firstly, to prioritize it. Then secondly, to sit down, just get some materials out and use them. Don't You don't always have to have a plan with what you want to do and what you want to make. And that's always how I was so, in my previous art making, it was always focused around a plan, around a message, around all of my art has always been quite social, even from a young age, commenting on is being quite centered around feminism and different topics. So I always had an idea. I always had, oh, I, I thought of this image and I must now create it. And a lot of the time I would feel a bit disappointed or not completely satisfied or happy with what I'd produced. And I find myself the happiest with what I've produced when I just make it in the moment. And it might be something really simple. Like today, the picture that I uploaded onto Facebook was just something I was doing with the kids. And I've tried to make more art in the classroom with the kids so that it's more like we're doing it together than me instructing them. And that's been quite good as well. So I've got myself an art book for school now and I've got my art book for home and I make the art, not always with the kids. I Sometimes I, I need to be there and I need to be instructing them on some things, but I, I try to do it in my own practice, do my own practice in class as well. And I do think that I realize the most therapeutic benefits from that, as in I feel the most happy with my work and I feel the most relaxed when I don't have a specific plan. I just sit down and I start making. So yeah, that's my advice concerning that. And yeah, I it's yeah, it, over the last few years, it's really led me into a position where I am very interested with becoming an arts therapist now. And there's still a few things that my husband and I would want to tick off doing in, in Uganda, but then very much I'm keen on moving back to the UK and pursuing a, a master's in art therapy and moving forward. And that I wouldn't say it was a, a knock-on effect of Ellis passing, but it's been a natural progression from his passing. I think it's a good illustration that it's about your evolution as a person and it isn't, like you said, just a, a direct effect of Ellis per se, but because Ellis's loss did alter the course of your life a little bit, there is an evolution of our life that occurs every time something significant happens. And I don't think we often take the time we should to recognize that. And I think it's okay. You need permission to recognize that while this isn't directly that, it is still it definitely, I can absolutely tell from hearing your story that if you hadn't lost Ellis, maybe you would be on, I mean, we can all say that maybe I would be on this same path, but probably not because of how much you, not directly, not exactly. It yeah. would somehow look different. It has had an effect and it's okay to say it's had an effect. Influencing factor, definitely. Exactly. Um, but it's not really something that I've been conscious of. Yeah. But I think the fact that you became more open at some point to grieving, to actively realizing that you could open the box back up and grieve and still move forward and do those things, it speaks volumes to that. And I want to encourage anybody, if you have to rewind and go back through what she talked about with the steps, that even if you don't think you're an artist, 
it's worth a try to, I think art therapy is hugely cathartic to our soul. Whether I think that about, you know, some people prefer to sing or dance or Mm. as a chef, a lot of times my art comes out in food. And I, it's funny how that immediately popped into my head when I heard you talking about that quite often you didn't, that you had not been in a practice of creating your own art. I've spent so many years creating food for other people, for menus that I created, for events that were specifically this or based on the ingredients of that region or whatever, that I was doing it for somebody else. And I was doing it as a creative outlet, but the same as you were, because it was, I don't want to say an assignment, but even in my case, a work duty. And I very rarely would go into a space of cooking it. And then if I cooked at home, you just, it was just almost repetition or whatever. I wasn't ever. And the reason I loved being a chef and cooking was the creativity of it. It was the caring for other people part, but it was the creativity. And when I started allowing myself to just go into the kitchen and cook for the sake of cooking and coming up with things on my own, just because I like them or I enjoyed them, or I had always wanted to do this or that, it was hugely therapeutic to not be in that space of almost a duty and thinking about what someone else was going to think of it or what they would learn from it. But to just go into something for the sake of doing it because you love it. For the fun of it, yeah. For the fun of it mm. is an entirely different experience. And yeah, people express their creativity in many different forms. And so I feel like, because the therapist that I saw, he was a qualified arts therapist, but he actually special, specialized more in dance and free mm-hmm. movement. So he worked with a lot of older women, particularly, who were, were lonely had reported feeling lonely maybe they'd lost a spouse been through different things and a lot of what he did was yeah moving the body however you see fit however you feel at that time and his therapy was a lot more movement based so he didn't really direct me so much with the visual arts he really left it up to my interpretation but yeah it's it is really interesting to tap into that and yeah get those feelings out in other forms and allow yourself to just be present in whatever makes you feel creative, I think is important. I think everybody has something in their home that they can find to draw something, paint something, sketch something. And if if they allow themselves to do it in the same manner as if they were journaling, sometimes it's even good in a journal where if you're journaling, allow yourself to just stop and doodle when you're thinking about that thought. And um, before you know it, you've, you know, created this little (laughs) piece of artwork that you're like, oh, definitely wonder what that's about. But it goes when you were talking about the movement therapy, I've recently talked a lot about how the word emotion, the major part of that word is motion. And that's not accidental in order to properly process our emotions we have to somehow move these things through the body. And you can look at it as physically moving your body helps. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But things as far as expression, whether it's an artistic expression of putting it on a piece of paper or canvas, 
or it's singing and getting it out, or it's moving your energy through your chakras, through yoga and energy flow and different things. This is all about the movement of our energy in our body Mm. and not letting it stay stuck. It's another reason that exercise is so beneficial as well. I really find exercise to help. It helps a um, lot. I sat and almost melted into a love seat for the first two years. And I know that was detrimental. A hundred percent. No, I'm not sure if I had the ability to do anything any different. I'll just say that to give full permission to we are where we are when we are. (laughs) But there was definitely a point that I knew I had to get up and it was a metaphorical get up and it was a physical get up. It was both. Mm -hmm. There was a time that I knew that if I didn't get up, it would kill me metaphorically and physically. Yeah. And so it's just so important sometimes to take that first step. And I am so thankful for your advice. I'm so thankful for the conversation and everything you shared And I would love to know that if people just want to see some of the great things you're doing, where they can see, find you online. Yeah. The best place to find me is on my Instagram page, which is at Laura Avril Dove. So Laura Avril, like Avril Lavigne, (laughs) and then Dove, like the soap. (laughs) (laughs) Like the bird. (laughs) And the bird. But you know what? I say the bird and then some people are like, oh, yeah, the soap. So the soap pops into people's heads before the bird. So (laughs) that's funny. I would have never thought of the soap. (laughs) Although we have Dove readily over here. It's not like we don't. But I would have thought I definitely think of the bird. Of course, the bird's on the soap. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, that's it. Um, Would you mind if I... Sorry. I will link that in my bio so everybody can find it in case they don't get that written down. But no, I wouldn't mind share whatever you want to share. Yeah, I I wanted to say of some very poignant moments for me. So if there's anybody who's wondering how can I support someone who's been through this, the moment that I found out Ellis had died, I was in an airport and I was on my way home because I knew he was missing But the moment I found out he'd been found and was dead, I was in an airport and I completely broke down, as I'm sure you can imagine, and just complete on the floor, my suitcase sprawled out next to me, real, just complete tears coming from my stomach was really suffering and 99% of people stared at me but there was one girl who I sat on the plane I was still I couldn't contain myself obviously and the air hostesses ignored me which you would think they would maybe be more trained to do but I was flying with a really cheap airline but there was one girl who sat next to me And she said, are you okay? I can see you're not okay, but do you want me to sit with you? And I was like, yes, please. (laughs) And she said, do you want to, do you want to tell me what's the matter? You don't have to tell me, but I'm here if you want to. And I told her everything and she shared her snack with me. And then she got off and we parted ways, but just the presence is everything 
And I hear this even when like people talk about mental health things now, just being there and being this non-judgmental figure, just somebody who's there. If you want to talk, I'm here. If you don't want to talk, it's also okay, but I'm here. So she really stands out because of how she handled that situation. And another friend of mine, there was, I was getting all kinds of different emotions, which was hard to deal with because after he passed on, hundreds of messages came into my inbox and it was really overwhelming. But one friend who I really remember Every day she messaged me. She didn't even ask me a question. She just said, I hope you're okay. I'm here. Every day, just at least for about a month. I'm here. Just good morning. I'm here. And that was so important to me because I didn't have to say anything to her. I didn't have to. I was feeling so much and I didn't have to share anything But the knowledge that she was just there was the most important thing to me. And I can't forget those people who didn't necessarily, obviously, I I was around a lot of people who who were also experiencing a lot. And I can't blame anybody for their reactions and how people were. It was a big shock to a lot of people. But I really, yeah, it sticks with me, those people who, who were there. And they say this a lot about people who are going through depression, who are going through mental health illnesses. You might not know what to say and you might not know what to do, but your presence and just being there is the most important thing for that person. And for me at the time, it definitely was the most important thing for me as well. I think that's so important to hear somebody else say, because sometimes I feel like some of us, I get on this microphone and speak every week and feel like, okay, everybody's tired of hearing me say some of these words. So to hear somebody else share how important it is to just be a kind human and how much it made a difference in your life really matters. And I, I'm so thankful that you shared that because I, I have definitely been on the receiving end of that before and it has become I won't even say it's become a mission. It's almost become a secondary way of being for me because my, for whatever reason, my empathy response has been cranked to full since losing Alex. And Mm -hmm. I have taken the time more than once on a regular basis to see. Sometimes it's a matter of picking up not letting things pass by you that you might otherwise, I don't want to know that person's crying. So I'm uncomfortable, but that person, I see people in my work a lot of times and they'll be saying things and in passing, because they're sharing something about why they're in front of me, they'll say something like, and and because my mother just died and, and then they keep going to, I stop and look them in the eyes and say, I just want to take a minute and tell you, I'm sorry for your loss. And that's not why they're in front of me, right? People want to be seen and heard and we need to have space held for us. Mm. And it's how it's so amazing sometimes how just the smallest gesture can make the biggest difference in our, not only our day, but sometimes it can impact us for a lifetime and how we respond to others. And Mm. I'm so glad that 
young young woman was there yeah. for you mm. because we're often surprised by humans in a bad way. It's so refreshing to hear you talk about not the 99 people that didn't do something, but the one person that did. Exactly. Yeah. And that you, sticks with you. You wouldn't have needed 99. Actually, you would have been overwhelmed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For sure. But For to sure. appreciate, and some people do get stuck in that of all the people that didn't and all the people that are jerks or whatever. And they lose the fact that one person, they'll say just one person cared. You said one person cared and that's huge. That's huge. Mm, Definitely. That's that's her being a shining light to what more people should be, but it was apparently the right person at the right place for you. And it really made an impact. And Mm. I'm really glad that you had that. And I think it's a great thing to share. So I appreciate you sharing that. And like what you said about the empathy side of things, I, especially like in the immediate year after Ellis's loss, I don't like something happened to my emotions where they have this campaign that I've seen recently in the UK where it's check twice. I think it's something like that. So it's, are you okay? Are you really Really okay? okay? And I was about a month or two after um, Ellis's death, there was another friend of a friend who lost her sister to suicide as well. And the, I'd never felt this within my body before the pain and the grief that I felt for her was, I can't, it's immeasurable. Like I, I just felt for people so much more through, not even just the suicide, any loss, any hardship, I felt it. And I, still do but I would say in that immediate year especially I felt it deep within me so much more and but it actually drove a lot of fear as well because I would be almost scared like I I want to make sure everyone around me is okay and everyone's fine which has now calmed down a bit it's still there but it's calmed down a lot more so yeah I, I really resonate with what you said there about the heightened empathy and I remember the moment of finding out of Ellis's death as well I remember just this weird feeling in my head these thoughts of like my life's changed forever forever now and I didn't know if that was a dramatic way of thinking about it or whatever at the time but it it has changed and I have changed and I don't know what, why I was clinging on to that so much at the time. But yeah, it's changed, like you were saying, a double-edged sword in some respects. It's nice to be really empathetic for people and to have those deep feelings for people. But it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. Because we know yeah. what it took to get to that place. We know what we had to lose in order to be there. And so it is really a double-edged sword. Yeah. I feel like this is a good place for us to stop. We could probably have three more conversations. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that, that's never that's ending. What, that's what happens with this. It's easy to, to spin off, but I think you had so much to impart to people. And I'm so thankful that you were willing to do it because I think this will definitely make an impact on lots of people, Laura. 
I hope so. Yeah. Well, I thank you and we will end for today unless there's anything else you would like to share. No, I, I just, sorry, I wrote something down. I want to check. No, no yeah. Just to reiterate about the journey and the journey. It's a journey. I don't ever imagine myself reaching the place where I'm better now and just accepting that I'm on this journey now and I have to take things as they come and more therapy, more learning, more progress. And yeah, that's my parting message. I think that's a very important parting message. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you. We will talk soon, I hope. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Grievers, it is my hope that from today, you will take that which serves you and simply leave the rest. If you connect with what you have heard, please subscribe to get notified of my new episodes every week, and please feel free to share it with others in the suicide loss community. If you are so led, I would also be honored if you would leave a review so that others might find us more easily. You can find me and all ways to connect with me at my Instagram, The Leftover Pieces. I want you to know that I know how very, very hard life is now. It's true that we will never be the same, but we are going to be okay. We will figure this out somehow, together. And we will keep our loved ones with us because there is no getting over or past grief, only learning to live more gracefully alongside it. Only through talk can we keep their memories alive, learn to live again, and bring some awareness so that less will suffer. Join me again next week and we will keep the talk going. We will sign off today, as always, with the wise words of my Alex's favorite, Peter Pan. Never say goodbye, because goodbye means going away, and going away means forgetting. Grievers, no one here is forgetting. Talk soon.